it is lovely to see you all. We'll be in Nehemiah chapter 6, so if you want to turn there, that's great. It occurred to me this week just how important it is, through reading this material, how important it is to see things like God sees them. We talk about discernment. Discernment can be described as judging based upon our senses, like uh, in the book of Jonah, where God described the children as not able to discern their right hand from their left. So this is something that they would immature. As they mature, they would be able to recognize that they have two hands and they're oriented on their bodies, right side and left side facing forward, and they could make a difference between the two. So this kind of discernment can be taught. It's something learned. But Jesus was more than discerning. He was perceptive. He was able to know the motives of people's hearts when they spoke to him. He knew what was behind the questions that were being asked. He had insight into people and into situations. And he wasn't overwhelmed. He wasn't discouraged. He wasn't impatient. All those things seem to flow from his ability to know the will of the Father and to abide in his love and to see things the way that God sees them, not as the disciples who, big storm, you know, freak out. He was, he was on a different level. And it's important for us as children of God to, to walk through this life daily seeing things God's way, whether it's uh, trials or or apparent successes, that this is from God and for his glory. And I love in this book of Nehemiah how we have these concrete examples of how to walk victoriously when all the odds are against us, if you were to consider odds, right? This this work had not been done for a 100 years. Uh, He had enemies outside. There was discouragement among the people. But here's this cupbearer in Shushan who God puts on his heart to return He prays for four months. God opens this door for him to go back. And he's faced with all these difficult challenges, one after another, day after day. And God, through him, does a great work. And God wants to do a great work in all of us as well. And something that's not really talked about is the internal battle that we know must have been going on in Nehemiah throughout this time, where it wasn't necessarily self-doubt, but just with the bombardment of issues and all the letters we'll see that the the enemies were really on to him with pestering him and trying to discourage him or distract him from the key thing he was supposed to be doing. And for us, sometimes this inner battle can be more threatening or difficult to manage in our daily life than the outward enemies that we may have or the situations where we find ourselves where we are at odds with ourselves over how to navigate this problem what should we do how do we respond when we are attacked what what do we say in that moment when when everything seems against us and we don't know and so it's this perceptive perception that comes from god that we need and praise the lord that we can know god's will and we can walk in his ways, and he will give us his spirit, and we can be victorious and do a great work, even as God did a great work through Nehemiah. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we honor you today. We thank you that you are a great God whose mercies are new every morning. Thank you, Lord, for the example we see in your word of Nehemiah, how he overcame 
so many obstacles to accomplish a great work. But Lord, we know that it's you that did the work. Without you, Nehemiah could have done nothing. And in our own lives, Lord, we know we can do nothing. But we can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens us. So we ask, Lord, that you would help us to apply this truth to each of our situations, to each of our hearts. Lord, you know the inner struggles that we're dealing with at this time, the questions that are baffling us and and the things that are unsettling us. And we pray, Lord, we would rest upon your word. We would trust you. We would have your eyes. We would perceive what you see. And we would be as Christ, who was not flustered through the cares of this world, but remained resolute in faith and did great things. And Lord, we too, we desire for you to do a great work in each of us today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Nehemiah 6, starting in verse 1. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the gate, the doors and the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. So I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent me this message four times, and I answered them in the same manner. The gaps of the walls are being filled The enemy has tried all these ways to hinder the work, and now they try a new tactic. Um, And he explains, I love how there's that parenthetical statement there where he says they've heard that the wall was built, but I hadn't, I mean, it wasn't quite done. So you see his humility here. There was still work to be done. The gates and doors were not yet hung. And they send him a letter and says, hey, let's get together in the plains of, oh, no, it's about a day's journey north near Samaria where Sanballat was governor at the time. And knowing the character of these men, knowing their previous threats, Nehemiah knew that only harm would come to him and come to the work. It would hinder the work that God had called him to do. And there was no reason to risk that by him leaving. On one hand, we can see he could have easily justified meeting with Sanballat because here they were, both Persian uh, chosen uh, governors at that time. Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem and Sanballat up in Samaria. So maybe he felt a sense of obligation, like, well, you know, I don't want to offend the guy. We we may have gotten off on the wrong foot, but maybe this would be a, a way to to kind of fix those burned bridges and to restore some order. And I'm the new guy in town. And he could have had this, uh, this, these thoughts really going on in his mind. But he knew they, they meant it for harm. He was able to perceive their, their motive in asking him. It wasn't to protect him. It wasn't to help him. It was actually to hinder. And he didn't just ignore the letters that were sent. Every time, four times, he sent messengers back to Sambalat And he said, I am doing a great work that I cannot come down. He didn't answer to Sanballat, but he answered to God. And he saw what he was doing by building these walls as a great work. The cliche goes, the grass is always greener on the other side. You've heard that, right? The the idea behind it is we can be uh, dissatisfied 
with our current situation and think that other people have it better or other people have it easier. You know, if I had that boyfriend, if I had that job, if I had that career advancement, things would be better for me. If I had more money, there's all these things that we think if we had, life would be different and better. And I wonder if we can apply this same um, principle or tendency in people to the great works that are done for God. Nehemiah was wise to realize that building a wall was a great work for God. Maybe we don't see a building project as a great work. Even influential men were telling him, hey, take a break. Let's go out to the plains of Ono. You deserve a little relaxation. There's, you know, you don't need to keep pressing on in this area. But he's like, no, no, this is what I'm called to do. What does a great work look like to you? If you had to imagine in your mind what a great work would be, what might it be? Would it be a great ministry that reaches thousands or raises millions or is world famous? Let me guess. I think for a lot of us, a great work, what we consider to be a great work, is something that's awaiting us in a misty future. It's not something that we're doing right now. Is that true for you? say, a great work. It's out there somewhere. It's what that person's doing. It's what I would rather be doing. If, if I could accomplish these things, that would be a great work. It's something that we dream of doing. It's not something we're currently doing. It's a glorious day when we realize that the work that we're doing is the great work that God's called us to do. And we're not going to stop doing it because we realize that it may not look great to some people, but this is a great work, because it's God's work, and he has me doing it. And I'm not going to be distracted from it. I am going to invest my life in this thing, in obedience to him, because it's great. He's a great God, and he's doing a great thing. It's a great work to build something. It's a great work to be a a godly friend to a lonely person. It's a great work to love your spouse in a practical way. It's a great work to use the spiritual gifts that God has given you for his glory. It's a great work to be obedient in that area of self-control. That's a great work. When we realize that uh, God has a great work for us to be doing right now, and it's easy for us as Christians to be distracted from that and to think that the great work is out there somewhere, or it's in this you know, a future time. It's not the thing that we're about right now. It's good when we're not looking for a better offer and we focus on what God's called us to do today. And we do that thing. Nehemiah, he's not going to shirk his role. He wasn't going to uh, delegate his role to someone else because he wanted to uh, have some influence with Sanballat but he did this great work. And so what, is, what do you think the great work is God's called you to do? Just something to think about. Verse 5, Then Sambalat sent his servant to me as before, the fifth time, with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel. Therefore, according to these rumors, you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king. 
And you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart. For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah did not heed the first four letters that were written, but then he sends, Sambalat sends this fifth letter, an open letter. It's very significant. It suggests that the previous letters were sealed. That means they were private. Nobody knew what they said. But when you were receiving an open letter, it meant that everybody could have read it. It was any, the messenger could have read it. He could have passed it around a couple of towns on the way. It had been widely distributed, but here he is receiving this open letter, so no seal on it. And it's an outrageous suggestion. It says, and he tips his hand too, where it says, it's reported among the nations. And Geshem says, right, kind of tipped his hand there. Oh, it's Geshem. You know, he's making up stuff again. Um, And then he said, according to these rumors, this is what we're hearing you're trying to do. You're trying to build these walls because you want to be king. And you've hired all these prophets to back you up and to get on your side and to influence the people. And surely these things will be reported to the king. You could be in a lot of trouble. Let's, let's come talk about it. Come over. Let's discuss how, how we fix this situation that he ignited, right? Nehemiah was doing a great work, but he wouldn't let these false accusations or these rumors or gossip sway him from it. And the fact that it's an open letter meant that it was intended to be read and to flame, fan the flames of gossip. It was, it had these inflammatory statements in it that everyone could listen to and go, whoa, is that true? And then Nehemiah, because he knows it's an open letter, he could have been really bothered about like, well, who knows about this? I got to go into damage control. I've got to get the word out to let everyone know this isn't true and send out messengers to all the towns that the letter has come through to make sure that people, you know, they don't get the wrong idea, and he, he, he really hasn't done that. We don't see Nehemiah do that at all. He doesn't feel the need to, to defend himself, to write an open letter in response to the open letter. He, he takes it on the chin, and he says, Lord, strengthen my hands. And he sent messengers back, and he said, You are making all this stuff up. He calls him a liar in a very polite way. He doesn't say, you're a liar, but he says, you're just inventing these things yourself. Now, I guess on a side note, um, when it comes to open letters, they're typically written by people who express a desire to be heard to affect change. A lot of times, open letters are written historically, and if you were to look up some uh, classic historical open letters, there are some which I was surprised to see. And usually written at a great risk, uh, personal risk to yourself, that this is really the only way to affect change, to get the story out there. Now, the Internet's brought a whole new dimension to this open letter thing with uh, you know, anonymity and just being able to share your side of the story and really spread slanderous lies. So... I encourage you, beware the open letter. 
Beware of the open letter that's perhaps you're reading about someone else or that you feel compelled to write about someone else. As believers, we're called to deal with things biblically, and that means if there's an offense, to deal with it one-to-one. And if that does not result in a restoration of relationship, then you're to get another person who's who's a believer and walking with the Lord to come into the situation, not to just broadcast it to everyone. So whether you're reading, like, don't bother reading the open letter as far as an open letter about this situation, because what does it do? Is it is it loving? Is it going to restore relationship? Usually it does quite the opposite. It puts everyone on the defensive. And uh, they hinder reconciliation. So that's unloving. That's something we should avoid. And we don't need to feel obligated to our, defend ourselves with an open letter in response to them. We see that here. Now, because Nehemiah knew why Sanballat had written this letter, he paid the letter no mind. He did not take it to heart. Verse 9, it says, For they were all trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. So because he knew why it was happening, he was perceptive to know his aim in writing this letter, and what if he gave into it, if he was afraid that he would be weakened and the work would not continue. Then he said, I have nothing to do with that. He didn't obsess over the letter. He didn't call a meeting of the elders to say, how are we going to put out this fire? How are we going to respond? You know, what's our, what's a good political move? Now we see in his response that the fear of man, the opinions of others, can be a great hindrance to the great work God wants to do in your life and through your life. Fear leads to weakness, and it can distract us from profitable labor. And we have to decide if we are going to put more weight on what people say or what people think, or if we're going to trust what God has said. Now know that your flesh places a great deal more uh, stock in what people say and what people think. That's your flesh. That's the human side of you that really cares about what other people think, and it really wants people to like you. Uh, When you're doing a good thing, when you're doing God's thing, and there's opposition to that. So know that that's your natural inclination, is to care a lot more about what people say than what God says. But as believers, we need to listen to him and choose to obey him. Keeping God's perspective, it keeps us going in the right way. That's what Nehemiah does. Verse 10, Afterward, I came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was a secret informer, and he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple, and let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, Should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that the Lord, that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me, because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. Four letters didn't work. Open letter doesn't work. So now a new tactic is explored, where someone on the inside, a fellow Jew, is hired to try to get Nehemiah to break God's law. And he says, oh, come aside, let's talk about this. And and he suspected no foul play at all. 
he meets up with Shemaiah, and uh, he says, I've got some important news. There's an assassination plot upon your life. They're coming in the night. And maybe because the doors and the gates weren't yet secure, he's like, let's go into the temple, close the doors, and then you'll be safe. And he famously responds, should such a man as I flee? Who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Even uh, at the threat of his own life, he refused to transgress. Even if his life depended on it, he had made God his refuge when there was no walls in Jerusalem. Should he not trust God now, now that the walls are mostly built? It was his suggestion of hiding in the temple that unmasked the truth. Nehemiah realized God had not sent Shemaiah, and he knew this because he knew the word of God, and that God is not going to tell you to sin to save your life. He was Nehemiah was of the tribe of Judah. It was the tribe of Levi who was permitted into, if you were a priest, or a Levite to go into the temple. So how the how it was situated was on the outside, there was the court of the Gentiles, where anyone could go in. Inside the court of the Gentiles, there was the court of women, where the treasury was. So if you were a Jew, and anyone that was a Jew could go into that area. Then inside that was the court of men. And inside that was where the temple was. And only people of the tribe of Judah, who had been sanctified, could go into the temple itself. What was that? Levite. What did I say? Judah. Sorry. Thank you. Appreciate that. So yes, you had to be a Levite of the tribe of Levi to go into the temple. And so he knew who he was. He's like, I'm the tribe of Judah. I am a eunuch. I am not to go into that place. I'm not going in to save my life. No way. And so when he heard that he suggested that he transgress God's law, he's like, God hasn't sent this guy. He's been hired. He's a hired mouth. It's ironic, isn't it, that Sambalat does the very thing he accused Nehemiah of doing before. He says, you have hired prophets. What was he doing? Hiring prophets. He was aware of what he was doing because he was doing it himself. He he accused him of doing it. Nehemiah was not hiring prophets. He was not afraid. He was not going to flee. He stood strong and resolute. Now, when we have God's perspective like Nehemiah does, it's not just for, let's say, the spiritual realm. It's for everyday interactions, to know what to do in a given circumstance. God's give us his, his word so that we can know what he says before a temptation comes. So we can be aware of what God's stance is on something before we're, we're hit with it ourselves. And as born-again Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us who guides us into all truth, the truth of Scripture. Jesus, at one point, rebuked the Pharisees for planning their day based upon the weather, what they could see, what they could discern, but they weren't discerning as far as uh, the signs that God had brought to them. Like in Matthew 16, verse 2, Jesus answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites! 
You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. So he's saying you base your day upon what you can see. If you see the the sky being red at night, you arrange plans for the day accordingly. If it's red in the morning, you don't go out um, on the boat because you know it's going to be threatening. It's not going to be a good day for fishing. But here I am, the sign, God said, I'll give you a sign, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. He would be born in Bethlehem, and there Jesus is. So this this verse here where it says, discerning the signs of the times, often it's reduced to speaking of end-time events. That's an, a common interpretation of it. But I think the best interpretation is the one right before them. The Pharisees, they want to see a sign from heaven. What has Jesus been doing? Sign after sign. He's been healing people. He's been feeding people. He's been, you know, the man with the withered hand. He's done all these things. And they're they're looking at the sky and planning their day. But they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, show me another sign. Show me another sign. And he's saying, I'll give you a sign. I'll be three days and three three days in the belly of the earth and I will rise again. My resurrection will be the sign. Would they heed it? Would they pay attention to it as much as they paid attention to the, the sky color? Most of them did not. So it's good for us to recognize world events, but every day there's real situations where we need insight from God as far as how to live and what to say and how to respond in faith. We see that with Nehemiah. Verse 13, for this reason he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way in sin, so that they might have cause for an evil report, that they might reproach me. My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat according to these works, and the prophetess Nodiah and the rest of the prophets who would have made me afraid. Nehemiah perceived Shemaiah was a false prophet who encouraged him to sin and be afraid. And he also speaks of this false prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets. So there was more than one. There was a lot of people who were saying things to him and badgering him about what he should be doing and where he should be going and pronouncing words against him. You'd like to think that you could trust the prophets, but he had to trust God rather than the prophets because the prophets weren't speaking for God. We see all these tricks that Sambalat tries and Tobiah just go by the wayside. And don't forget this. Nehemiah is a cupbearer. He knew a Merlot from a uh, Cabernet. But this guy, he had never led a construction project. He was the new guy in Jerusalem, an appointed Persian governor. He's Jewish, but appointed by the king of Persia. He had to deal with these potential distractions for months. He hadn't aspired to these things. He wasn't thinking, oh, it'd be great work if I could just build something someday. You know, tired of pouring these drinks and testing this wine. I'd rather do something with my hands. I want to be a governor. He wasn't aspiring to this, but God had put him in this position. The wall has not been built for a hundred years. There's all this opposition. His labor pool is priests, perfumers, jewelers, sons and daughters, right? The kids are working on this wall. 
The nearest governor, Sambalat, he wants him dead. There's all these prophets that have been paid to try to influence him to do the wrong thing and to quit. But because he trusted in God, God did a great work. And because he was so unqualified, in one sense, it proved God's power through his life. He was able to do it in spite of all who opposed him. His lack of training. He confided in God. He found strength and wisdom for each day, each situation that came. You cannot be prepared for this, okay? And there's things that will happen in our lives we cannot be prepared for. We were not trained for that. We were not ready for that. We could not have expected that. It catches us off guard, and we don't know what to do. But we have a God who has all wisdom, strength, and who does a great work, and he wants to do one in you. Nehemiah 6, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, And all the nations around us saw these things. They were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. So in 52 days, the walls, which for over a century had been rubble, burnt stones, they're rebuilt. The doors and gates are hung. It was a hard job. It required day and night vigilance. Half the people standing guard while the other half worked. And even those who worked, they were carrying weapons to protect themselves. And I imagine if you're living in Jerusalem, this would have been such an encouragement to see this wall go up. But Nehemiah, he points out their enemies and their response to it. When they heard of those walls being completed, they were disheartened. Um, the word cast down, it means they had failed. So you go, oh, that was a terrible fail. We tried to stop them. We couldn't stop them. The walls are built. And it says, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. So now we see the unbelievers perceiving something. The same word where it says perceiving the right hand from the left, they perceived, yada, that God had done the work. They go, wait a second. These people, there's no way they could have built that wall. They didn't have the materials. They didn't have the labor. They didn't have the army. They didn't have uh, you know, qualified leadership. And look at what has happened. Despite our efforts to stop it, it's done. And they were disheartened by it. It's really cool that God uses the great works in our lives to show others his reality. That the benefit of our changed life, we receive some of that benefit because we get closeness to God. But unbelievers too, they begin to perceive that this work, this change in us is of God and not of us. It's like when God delivered the children of Israel from slavery in Egypt when they went to Jericho. It says our hearts are melting because what a God you guys have. Our hearts are melted for fear because of what he did in bringing you out. That that the, the army of the Egyptians would be drowned in the sea. Such mighty signs and wonders. And it's really true as well on a personal state when we see people who are believers delivered from addictions and ways of thinking um, and just changing them completely. I knew a, a brother in Christ who once told me he had been diagnosed as a manic depressive. 
uh, in his younger days. Um, I think that's bipolar now. But he says, when I, I came to Christ around 40 years old, and when I did, that, that uh, disorder completely left me. And people around him realized that he's kind, he's gentle, he's loving, and it's a good thing. Like, he's changed for the better. I know people who, who were freed from cursing, just habitual cursing and, and drug use and alcoholism, and now they're, they're different people. And people in the world that knew them go, how is this possible that they could be so different? They, I knew that guy, and he's so different now. People who are skeptical of God's existence, they will perceive that something real has happened here. And that is something that I, des- I know God desires too, that, that the world would see through our lives and our testimony without having to preach to them that he is real. He has done real things in our lives. Power to change a person, to give love in a heart that was far from him. Verse 17, also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and the letters of Tobiah came to them. For many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. So when the walls completed, was everything just gravy? Everything's great? No, Tobiah is still hanging around with his antics. He's still in there. He he had mocked them at the beginning. He's the one who dropped down the fox uh, remark about, oh, their wall is so lame that even if a fox goes on, it's going to fall over. right? So at, at the very beginning, he was opposing the work. And yet there's all these Jews who are in constant communication with him. And they had pledged themselves to him, meaning they were loyal to him because of his family connections. Because his his kids had married into uh, the Jewish people. They're sending letters all the time. They're unwittingly sowing these seeds of discord. Their loyalty to Tobiah blinded them to his faults and what he was really about. They were convinced that Tobiah is a great guy. They would always come and say, hey, check out what Tobiah did. He's such a great guy, and he, he really loves us. And, and Nehemiah is like, no, it's not how it is. He knew. He had this insight into Tobiah, like, not a good guy. Not good for you to be in constant communion with him. You're telling him what I'm saying, and then I'm getting these letters that are threatening to him to try to make me afraid. And it was a treacherous minefield that Nehemiah was needing to navigate. And one thing we can glean from this passage is even among God's people, there can be divided loyalties. Nehemiah is loyal to God. A lot of people were loyal to Tobiah. They were. Tobiah was an Ammonite. His children had intermarried with the Jews, and, and Nehemiah saw harm in conversing with Tobiah, but not everyone saw it that way. So there's two things we have to accept as children of God, we can be like Nehemiah at times. We have insight into the lives of others, what's really a, a potentially harmful association. We see something in their life that's harmful for them. They're not able to see it. They don't see a problem with this thing. But we can also be on the other side where we have pledged ourselves or we're loyal to a thing that's really not good for us. 
we don't see it, and we can only think of good from it. So we can be in both camps here. We can have that misguided loyalty. People can deceive us. And I like what Nehemiah does here. He assesses the situation without personal judgments. He doesn't say that those people were stupid for associating with Tobiah. He doesn't accuse or castigate people for their associations. Nor does he send out threatening letters to try to respond and to, you know, tell Tobiah to get lost and none of that. He doesn't involve himself in that way. He doesn't feel the need when people come to him and say, hey, check out all these good things that Tobiah did. He's like, well, let me tell you all the bad things that Tobiah has done. He doesn't do that. He doesn't feel like he's got to set the record straight. In due time, the character of Tobiah would be clear for all to see. We will see that coming up. The warning that Moses gives in Numbers 32, 23, we can know this principle stands for us and for others. It says, be sure your sin will find you out. I found God uses time as a great revealer of character. In time, it will come out. And it's our response both to good and bad reports that says something about you. The way you respond, it says something about you, not that other person. Sin will not stay contained for long. Instead of obsessing over the divided loyalties of others, we need to ensure that our loyalty is for the Lord. What good would it have done for Nehemiah to to be wringing his hands and grieving continually over the divided loyalties of God's people if his heart is not loyal before God? It would have accomplished nothing. Knowledge is important, but it's not everything. Anyone here ever seen G.I. Joe? I, I, pro- I didn't really think there'd be a lot. But anyway, at the end of every episode, it's, they say, and I, I really am like, why do they say this? But it's knowing is half the battle. Remember, kids, knowing is half the battle. And it's like, well, why does he say that? Well, see, knowing is one thing. Doing it is another thing. Two different things. Knowing it, I would say, is not necessarily even half the battle. It's like the beginning of the battle. Doing it is something totally different. Nehemiah, when he's in Shushan, he knew God had revealed to him he was to do something. But it was very, it was a different thing entirely to actually go to Jerusalem and to to actually build something and to see it to completion. That's a whole nother thing. We can know that we're in a spiritual battle, but it doesn't mean that we are fighting it or that we are, we know the first thing about how we defend ourselves. How we, how we deal with those threats in our lives, those threatening letters, those emails written to make us afraid. How we respond day to day in our situation with real people not fighting invisible battles, but real ones. The ones that are going on inside you. That's the one that we need to know how to fight. It's through Jesus that we learn and grow through doing. It says in Hebrews 5, 13 and 14, it says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, 
who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. God's divinely formulated the Bible so that when you're young in faith, it's like milk for an infant. It's perfectly suited for your spiritual nutrition needs. And when you've been walking with the Lord for a while and you've begun to put into practice some things, it's like meat. There's that protein content that we can, it strengthens us, it nourishes our bones, it helps us to grow stronger. So this full age is not talking about your knowledge of doctrine. It's not like you start with the gospel and go, okay, well, let's move on to some more uh, deep things or, or kind of hidden things that are now being brought to light. Those who are of full age, it means they have put into practice the things that they know. That's maturity. There's a lot of people who know a lot of theology, but who are babes, like the Hebrews were, because they haven't put into practice the things that God's shown them. They're not loving one another. They're not trusting God's word. They're not denying themselves. So they're not doing the basic things. So it doesn't matter how much knowledge you have, in a sense. But are you putting into practice the knowledge you do have? That's where maturity comes in. We grow when we do good and avoid evil. So knowledge does not equal maturity. Maturity comes by practicing the good we know. Now, while discerning or distinguishing of spirits is a spiritual gift, this discernment that's being talked about here, the ability to make righteous judgments according to the Bible, is learned and cultivated by practice, by doing it. And it's applicable for the life of every Christian. This is something that needs to mark all of our lives, this kind of discernment. Could you please turn your Bibles to Philippians 1, verse 9 through 11. It's Paul's prayer for the Philippians, and it really blew me away that uh, how, how simple it is, yet how profound it is. It's one of those things that you've read and I've read and said, why didn't I see this so clearly before? God really showed me and is showing me so much, and I feel like I'm just scratching the surface of it. It's phenomenal because I had never really made this connection between love and knowledge before. Check it out in Philippians 1, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Here there's a connection between the abundance of love and more and more in knowledge and all discernment. You know, the love of God has so much to teach us in regards to discerning the right course of action to take in any circumstance. We know what to do because of the love that has been shed abroad in our hearts. God has loved us. So we love others. He has forgiven us. So we forgive others. When we hear bad things that people have said about us, God, God's love, it keeps us from answering in kind. Great spiritual gifts are nothing without love, right? 
Because he goes through in 1 Corinthians 12 about all these spiritual gifts. And he says, well, I'll show you another thing. Love. It's the greatest fruit of the Spirit of all. Because if I don't speak with love, then I'm like a clanging cymbal. In the same way, knowledge is nothing without love. Knowledge is important. But again, it's not everything. It must be used in love. People can have vast knowledge, but without the love of God, they can't see clearly or walk uprightly. Right? We get this. We can look in the world and say, smart guy, but but no love. So therefore, there's pride and arrogance, unforgiveness, bitterness. And these things will mark our lives too if we're not walking in love. Love is the touchstone of the Christian walk. It reveals the truth of how we should live. Everything must be tested against God's love. And a touchstone was an assaying tool that was used to determine if gold was in an alloy. So you'd have this piece of jasper stone and you would rub this rock or this uh, metal against it. And if it left a mark, you could know there was some gold in it. If you rub it and there's no mark at all, since gold is really soft, um, it would leave parts behind. But if it was silver or something else, it wouldn't leave a mark. So in the same way, we say, how should I respond? Are these words good? Are they loving? Put them against that touchstone. And if there's something, if it says, yeah, that's motivated in love, then Lord, help me to say it in a loving way. So it gives us, God's love helps us to abound in more and more knowledge. It's not knowledge that helps us to abound more and more in love. God's love gives perspective. So as we're in the word, we begin to put in practice the truth. God's love gives us knowledge, discernment, the ability to approve excellent things. Approving the things that are excellent. And so our lives can be filled with the fruits of righteousness, living in the way that pleases God. And God's love, it's like our in our spiritual DNA. You know, uh, in those talk shows or something, we're like, who's the real father? And they do like the DNA test to, to tell. Well, the DNA, in our DNA, it's God's love. So that's how we know we're children of God. It's because of the love he's put in us. In 1 John 5, 1 through 4, it says, Whoever believes that Jesus is Christ is born of God. Everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him. So if we love God, we'll love others. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And that is not a burdensome command because he's given us the ability through his spirit to do that. This prayer for the Philippians is God's will for your life. It is God's will for my life. And one of the big battles we'll face is to abide in Christ's love. As tantalizing as it might be to have secret knowledge into the lives of others or to be uh, you know, perceptive of things for our benefit, God provides insight into our hearts, into our minds, into a situation through his love. And when we abide in that love, that is the great work that God has for us to do. And that's really the, the uh, supporting or undergirding precept of our lives is to walk in the love of Jesus. And it may show itself in a building project 
or in writing a letter or sharing a meal with someone or stopping for a conversation or choosing not to retaliate. That's how we can show the love of God. And that's the insight we need for every day. So I want to encourage you guys with that. Explore. Think about that passage in Philippians, how love results in more and more knowledge and how that fits into your life. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the love that you've shown us through Jesus, that you do give us insight. Show us, Lord, what this connection is and how we can walk in your love continually. Not in the the way the world sees love, Lord, but the way that you love, sacrificially, completely, continually, and without condition. Lord, we are just amazed that you would love us, and we want to abide in your love. I pray that you would overwhelm us, Lord, with not, not by a great work that you want us to do, but by that great work of receiving your love and walking in it that you've given to each one of us. And I pray, Lord, you'd give us insight into our own hearts so we might see our great need to have your love within us and that we could uh, judge with righteous judgment, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Thank you that you are faithful and true. Thank you for this example of Nehemiah and the work that was done, that it was your work. And Lord, in all of our lives, do your work. And may we cooperate fully with you in Jesus' name. Amen.